Tammy and I celebrated, got to get this right, 31st wedding anniversary this past Wednesday. I see her nodding. That's a good thing. So we celebrated 31 years this past Wednesday, and I was, jo- I was talking with some people at work. Yeah, thank you. Uh, that's for Tammy, because I was talking with some people at work, and I said, you guys only get me for a few hours a day. Can you imagine 31 years? No, you can't. So anyway, so with that, so one story from our, from our 31 years of marriage. Um, my job moved us from the Brownsburg area out to Connecticut back in 2003. And when we moved there, we were out, I, I was in the National Guard at the time as well. So we moved there, we were out there about nine months, and then I get deployed. So Tammy and the kids move back. And as they move back, she comes back to... She comes back to Brownsburg with an unlimited power of attorney signed by me and, of course, my blessing. So she buys the house that we're in now. And we've been in that house now since 2004. And that move for me was actually the easiest of all the moves that we've had because I wasn't even here for it. So I got to say thanks to an awesome church family, thanks to awesome friends. And, um, again, one of the easiest moves I've ever had. But when I got back from deployment, there was one thing in the house that I struggled with. Every house has kitchen cabinets, but I could not for the life of me figure out which way the cabinets open because they didn't have handles on them. And so, I, I know, uh, you're, <laughs> it's a small thing, but the struggle was real for me. I think it's probably because I'm dyslexic, so that's one of the things that Pastor Eddie and I have in common. But again, we didn't have knobs on them at the time, and Tammy would sit there and, and laugh at me and watch, and she said, you know, she would jokingly say, how can you possibly, you, you've got a 50-50 chance of opening that cabinet the right way. How can you possibly 100% of the time get it wrong? <laughs> Welcome to my world. That's just me. So with that, it, it might be a stretch to say that Tammy was astonished at my inability to, to get this and the fact that she could not understand. And, and, and so with that, that's where we transition to this passage in Galatians. So similar to Tammy not being able to understand how I could not open the cabinet, such a simple task, Paul was astonished that the churches in Galatia were receiving false teaching, but more specifically that they were deserting God and turning to a distorted gospel. And Paul focuses here, we're going to have two major points this morning. The first one is a distorted gospel, which leads to deserting God and turning from the true gospel, the revealed gospel. And then our second point will be the revealed gospel, which we'll get to here in a little bit. So our, our first point again, a dis- oh, and each of these points have two subpoints, by the way. So if you're keeping notes, leave a little bit of room in there. So our first point here, a distorted gospel from verses six and seven. And again, Paul writes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So as Chris started this series last week, he gave us an introduction to this letter. So a little bit of a reminder of who we're talking about here. So in verse 6, Paul's writing, I am astonished. And again, Paul is writing in the first person. In verse 1 of this book, Paul writes him, or identifies himself as an apostle, which is a messenger of Jesus, one who was taught by Christ, one who was commissioned by Christ, and one who was speaking on the authority of God the Father and the risen Jesus Christ as well. And again, he's writing this to the churches in Galatia. We also see here the the identification of Christ at the end of verse 7 with the gospel of Christ. And then finally, 
there, there's a group here as well that Paul identifies, and he refers to them as some who trouble you, some who are troubling the churches in Galatia. And this is likely the group of Judaizers who had been following Paul from Antioch and Iconium throughout the region of Galatia, and they had stayed after he had left. Now, again, as Pastor Chris noted last week, this, this is a very doctrinal letter. So Paul is teaching doctrine to the churches in Galatia, and he's combating this false teaching that is happening there. And so one of the things with Paul's letter is he, he normally starts with a greeting or with a salutation, something like this. This is me, Paul, writing to you, whichever church he's writing to, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? What he adds here in this letter, though, to the Galatians is he actually starts his doctrinal teaching in this salutation. Take a look at this with him back in verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And then jumping into verse 3, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. So normally Paul would not begin his instruction, but where he jumps into right here is he's jumping into the gospel, right? God who raised Jesus from the dead and Jesus who came to take the punishment for our sins. He's, he's charging right into this head first. And, and this is doctrinally consistent with what Paul wrote to other churches as well. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, again, this is consistent with Paul's doctrinal teaching, but it normally comes later in the letters that he's writing. And in this letter to the, to the churches in Galatia, he jumps in right away and starts to talk about the gospel, okay? And, and we see that. We'll, we'll come back here in just a minute to why I see that. But there's also another aspect too. In, in most of Paul's letters, he writes a little from the, before he gets into the main body of the letter, right after the greeting, he writes words of encouragement, words of thanksgiving, and identifies to those churches how he's praying for them. So for example, in, in the book of Ephesians, Paul writes almost 500 words to this effect. But in summary, in Ephesians 1, verses 15 and 16, he writes, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Something similar in the book of Philippians, almost 200 words of encouragement, thanksgiving, and prayer. In chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 of Philippians, Paul writes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making all my prayer with joy. And, and this is consistent with the letters that he's writing to the various churches. To the church in Colossae, he, spends almost, he writes almost 280 words of encouragement, thanksgiving, and prayer. 1 Thessalonians, 238 words. 2 Thessalonians, over 300 words. Book of Romans, or the letter to the church in Rome, 196 words. The first letter to the church in Corinth, 122 words. And the second letter to the church in Corinth, 262 words of prayer, encouragement, and thanksgiving. How many does Paul write here to the churches in Galatia? Zero. And, and I think the reason for that is, is not that he's not thankful for them, not that he's not praying for them, but, but there's something going on here that is so urgent that he jumps right into this is me writing to you, grace you and peace from God our Father. And oh, by the way, you guys need to get it together because this is a pretty serious issue that you're being led astray on, okay? So 
Paul is astonished. He, he, he identifies that in verse six. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. So we see that Paul is deserting God and turning to a distorted gospel. Now, notice here, I don't believe that Paul's astonished that someone is teaching a false gospel, right? There, there, are, there are plenty of references in the New Testament and in some of the letters that Paul wrote and in some of the other letters that are written by Peter and Jude, etc., that talk about false teaching that's going to or is already in the church. So Paul's not astonished that somebody was trying to lead them astray. What Paul was astonished at was that they were so quickly deserting God and turning from the true gospel to a distorted gospel. So this word astonished, um, this is rendered in some translations and even in some parts of the ESV as to marvel at something or to be amazed at. It comes from the Greek word, root word thematso, and that's the only Greek word I'm going to define today because that's the only one I could pronounce. So the Greek word thematso has the root idea of being silent, such as being struck dumb with amazement, such as by a blow or a shock. Okay? So, so this word carries much more significance and a much heavier tone and a meaning than just mere surprise. So Paul's not just surprised, he's astonished at how quickly the churches in Galatia are turning from him. Some examples of where else this word is used in the New Testament, thamazo, John chapter three, where, where Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and basically says, hey, we know that the things you're doing, people can't do unless God's with them. And then Jesus launches into that, I shouldn't say launches, but then identifies and makes a comment to him that, hey, you know what? You must be born again. And with that, Nicodemus is probably scratching his head and he, he kind of says, what do you mean be born again? Can a man out of the wound and then be born again a second time? And Jesus' response to Nicodemus' response is, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Another example is in John chapter four where Jesus is at the well and he's speaking with a Samaritan woman. And the disciples had gone into town to buy some groceries, basically. And so they're coming back. And, and they see Jesus speaking to this, not only a woman, but a Samaritan woman. And John, John records this again in chapter 4, verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled. They were amazed. They were astonished that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, Who do you, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? These examples show the amazement and give us a picture that they were perplexed. Okay? They, were, they were struck dumb with amazement. They were trying to understand either what they heard or what they saw. And, and that's where Paul is here in his letter to the Galatians. And like Tammy trying to figure out, how can you not open the cabinet from the right side? Paul is saying to the church in Galatians, I'm astonished that you would so quickly desert God. Which brings us to our first subpoint under a distorted gospel. A distorted gospel causes people to desert God. We see this in verse six. I'm astonished that you are so quickly turned, so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Now, notice here, Paul doesn't say, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting God. But let me tell you where I get that from, that, that I believe that he's referring to God. Uh, Timothy George, in his commentary on Galatians, provides three different viewpoints of this that, that some people believe. First of which is some believe that Paul's actually referring to himself because he was the one that took the gospel to the churches in Galatia. Others believe that Paul's actually referring to Jesus Christ because the false teachers were contradicting 
the finished work that Christ did on the cross. But I believe more accurately this is interpreted as God the Father. And the reason I believe that, there are two passages here we'll look at. One here is from later on in in Galatians chapter 1, specifically verses 15 and 16, where Paul writes, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. And then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And again, for that reason, I believe Paul is referring to the fact that the Galatians were deserting God. We, we are called by God into the grace of Christ. It's God who calls us. And, and, and that's why I believe God or Paul is referring him here to the, desert, the Galatians deserting God. This Greek word deserting, uh, the, uh, John Stott describes it this way. It's to transfer one's allegiance. It's used of soldiers in the army who revolt or desert, and also of men who change sides in politics or philosophy. But I also want you to note that, that, that this, that this ver- word deserting is not just merely walking away from something. It's actually changing sides, right? It's like throwing away your Colts jersey and putting on a Patriots jersey, right? It's that bad, right? But also notice the verb tense here, right? It's present tense, right? You are so quickly deserting the one who called you in the grace of Christ. And see, this is not yet completed, right? And so there, there, there are some arguments of whether or not there, this is an issue of apostasy, which I'll talk about here in a little bit as well. But I think more this is a warning to the churches in Galatia to stop what they're doing and to come back to the gospel, the true gospel that was preached to them. It's not too late. They've not fully turned. They're in the process of turn, or I'm sorry, they're in the process of deserting God. Okay? Our second point of a distorted gospel is a distorted gospel leads to turning from the true revealed God. So not only is Paul astonished that they were deserting God, but he's also astonished that they were so quickly turning aside from the true revealed gospel to a distorted gospel. And I think that one of the reasons that Paul here is astonished or that he's struck dumb or that he's perplexed is because he had to be thinking, I shouldn't say he had to be, I'm inferring here my thoughts. I I believe Paul was thinking of everything that he experienced in the region of Galatia. So to look at what that was, we need to take a look at this just at a high level, referring back. So we studied this a few weeks ago in Acts chapter 13 and 14. We see that Paul and Barnabas had sailed from Cyprus in Antioch, and they sailed to the island, I'm sorry, they sailed from Antioch in Syria. Then they sailed to the island of Cyprus, went from one side to the other proclaiming the gospel. They then sailed from Paphos in Cyprus and went to Perga. And then from Perga, they traveled to Antioch in Pisidia. That's my map, by the way. This is the direction they're going. It's mirrored for you, though. Um, but but so, so there are two different Antiochs here. There's an Antioch in Syria where they started and an Antioch in Pisidia, which is in the region of Galatia, where they ended up. And, and, and these are same city name, different cities, actually different countries as well. Okay? So as they were in Antioch, they began to preach the gospel in the synagogues. But the Jews kicked them out, so they said, okay, fine, we'll take the message to the Gentiles. So then they were preaching, Paul and Barnabas were then preaching the message of the gospel to the Gentiles, and, 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 they, and they were rejoicing in what they heard until we get to the end of Acts 13, where 
Uh, Luke writes in Acts, he says, but the Jews stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and they drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went on to Iconium. And then in chapter 14, we pick up where Paul and Barnabas are actually now in Iconium. Iconium, Iconium, Iconium. Where they met also opposition and they found out about a plot to mistreat them and stone them. So they, when they learned of this, they went from Iconium and went to Lystra and to Derbe. And what do they do there? And along the way, they continue to preach the gospel. So when they get to Lystra, this is where, where we talked about this again a few weeks ago. This is where Paul was stoned, dragged out of the city, left for dead. He regains consciousness, gets up, walks back into the city. And then he and Barnabas then leave Lystra and go to Derbe. To do what? To preach the gospel. And so I, I believe Paul's astonished at the churches in Galatia because this is where all this stuff happened. And, and there's a good chance that the people he's writing to were actually eyewitnesses to some of these events. In Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Derby, some of these people probably saw this stuff firsthand. And if they didn't see it firsthand, they probably heard it from somebody who did see it firsthand. Right? Now, they wouldn't have been in all of those cities, but they would have heard about all these things. And, and this is why Paul is astonished at this. Because what, as they saw Paul preach the gospel, they saw him persecuted. And so I have to believe that Paul was thinking something along these lines when he wrote this. How can you desert God and turn from the gospel that we preach to you, the gospel that you received, not to mention what you saw, what happened to me because of me preaching the gospel to you. Why would I endure that persecution and those attempts on my life if this gospel were not of first importance for your salvation? And, and I think that that's why Paul's astonished here because again, the context of this is important. Most of these people would have either heard, seen firsthand or heard from people who saw these events firsthand. And that's why Paul is astonished that they're so quickly turning. Now, if Paul had actually been struck dumb or struck silent by this, he got his voice back pretty quickly because the book of Galatians is six chapters really of gospel gold. So he got his voice back pretty quick. But, so, so far we've looked at a, a distorted gospel and that a distorted gospel leads to deserting God and that a distorted gospel leads to turning from the true revealed gospel. Now we're going to turn our attention to the second point, which is the revealed gospel. We read here Acts, or I'm sorry, uh, Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 through 12 again. But even if we or an angel from God should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And as we said before, so, I now, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ." As we see this, here, this, this revelation in the context of Scripture, when we see the word revelation, think of a communication of knowledge that was not previously known or was previously hidden that is revealed to man by God or by Christ. 
okay? and I'll add, or by the Holy Spirit. So this revelation is something that Paul had not heard before, but was re- revealed to him directly to Christ. To give a little bit more context around this, a couple other verses here. Colossians chapter 1, verses 20, well, the last couple of words of verse 24 through verse 27. The church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given me, given to me for you, I make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then in Romans chapter 16, verses 25 and 26. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all the nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. So this revelation of the gospel is the gospel that Paul received from Christ, is the gospel that Paul preached to the churches in Galatia and the gospel which was then received by the churches in Galatia and is still the same gospel that we're talking about today. So we're going to cover these two subpoints here together. So the revealed gospel, we see the gospel preached and we see the gospel received. And again, we're, these two subpoints are really lumped together here. Um, but to see this, it's important that we take a look back. If, if you've got a pew Bible, uh, this is on page 921. If not, just flip over to Acts chapter 13 because I'm going to read several passages here. And again, I know we studied this a few weeks ago, but it's important to hear what this gospel is that Paul's talking about. What we're going to read here is the gospel that Paul received directly from Christ. It's the gospel that he preached to the churches in Galatia, and it's that same gospel that was received by them. So Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 16. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hands said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for 40 years, he put up with them, he put up with them in the wilderness. I laugh every time I read that verse. Uh, verse 19, and after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism. This was John the Baptist. John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Adam, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, 
which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found, him in, no, found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who were now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he spoke in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he said in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. See, this is the gospel that Paul was referring to in Galatians chapter 1, verse 12, when he said, For I did not receive it, the gospel, from any man nor was taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel that Paul preached to the churches in Galatia, the gospel that they received, and the gospel that is preached to us even here today, this morning. So this true gospel, this is the true gospel. Anything that adds to it is a false gospel, a distorted gospel, or a different gospel. So think about it this way. If we have to add, to add anything to the works that Jesus did on the cross, how is that good news? How could that possibly be good news for us if we have to do something and it's not already done for us? So I've been, I've been intentional with the descriptions that I've used in the outline this morning when I'm referring to a distorted gospel and the revealed gospel. And, and I believe if you look at this passage here that we just read, you'll see Paul's doing the same thing. And, and I think Paul's intentional on this as well. Why? Because there are many distorted gospels but there's only one true revealed gospel. And I also find it interesting that at this point in the letter, Paul does not define which distorted gospel he's talking about. He doesn't elaborate what, those, what, what these people who are causing trouble, he doesn't elaborate how they're causing trouble other than they're preaching a different gospel. Now, later in this letter, and as we go on in the weeks ahead, we'll see some examples of what might have been the distortion of the gospel, what I believe was the distortion of the, of the gospel by the Judaizers, but that's not the focus of this letter. Rather, the, the focus, I believe, of this letter and where Paul's astonishment comes in is how quickly they were turning, they were deserting God and turning to a different, different gospel. And, and to, because I also think that Paul wants us to focus on the true revealed gospel. Had he spent time talking about what this false distorted gospel was, that's where our attention would be. Well, we need to not do that. Well, yeah, we shouldn't do that. But I think Paul's driving us here to be more focused on the real, true, revealed gospel. And, and you know something else? Until Jesus Christ returns, 
we're going to see more and more distorted gospels come up. Just think of the distorted gospels that we've seen in our lifetime, let alone the last couple of years. We could probably name two or three right now false gospels that have been preached and talked about. Maybe, thank, praise the Lord, not from this church, but from other churches and in the media and in politics today, right? So we need to stay focused on the true gospel. And that's why that we, as, as, our, as your pastoral team, why we are committed every Sunday to preach the gospel to you from the scriptures. Well, think about it this way. Uh, just a l- real quick side note too. If you were in our Sunday school classes this morning and, and, and your teacher's going through the, the gospel project, some of this is gonna sound pretty familiar, right? Because it, it was from the book of Jude, but it was on false gospels and, and false teachings, right? So some of this is gonna sound familiar. And I, I, I was... I was Laughing when, when our Sunday school class, and Dwayne was teaching our Sunday school class, uh, he referenced counterfeiting. And that, that's one of my analogies here today. So think of the secret service, right? So these are the guys, the guys and gals that not always just talk to their wristwatch when they're protecting the president, but they're also responsible for investigating counterfeiting of United States currency, right? So with that, while they are informed of counterfeiting tactics, the way that they can spot a counterfeit piece of currency is because they know the original so well. There is no question in their mind when they see a dollar bill or a $20 bill or a $100 bill, they can pretty much spot with very quick, with very quick, with quickly and with a lot of accuracy whether or not that actual piece of currency is real. Why? Because they know the original. And that's where Paul is challenging the churches in Galatia to do this. And, 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 and I think that he's exhorting us even today as we read this. Look at verses 8 and 9. But if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preached to you, how do they know it's contrary? Because they know the original. Let him be accursed. And he follows that up not just to what's preached to you. He follows that up in verse 9 and says, As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed. The only way they would know if it's contrary is if they knew the original really, really well. And, and I think that's the focus of this letter, or at least the first part of this letter. We've got to know the gospel. Because it, it doesn't matter if we can identify, well, let me rephrase that. If we spend our time learning about the current false gospel, how are we going to recognize the next false gospel that comes along? We have to know the original, right? So, in, in his book, I've got uh, some copies of this book, by the way. I've got two extra copies uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to quote some things here from this book. This is called What is the Gospel? It's written by Greg Gilbert. It's a great short read. I've got two extra copies. If you're interested in one, they're afraid to see me at the back after the service this morning, back there at the, at the table behind the stone wall. But I like the way Greg Gilbert identifies, helps us to frame what is the gospel. He, he uses Romans chapters one through four, and he identifies four crucial questions for us to ask and then outlines a brief forward summary of what the gospel is. Okay, question number one. Who made us and to whom are we accountable? Who made us and to whom are we accountable? Question number two. What is our problem? In other words, are we in trouble and why? 
Question number three, what is God's solution to that problem? How has he acted to save us from it? How do I, myself, right here, right now, how do I come to be included in that salvation? And what makes this good news for me and not just someone else? So let me read a little bit here of of Gilbert's book. He says, we can summarize these four main points, these four questions, like this. God, man, Christ, and response. Of course, Paul goes on to unfold a universe of other promises God has made to those who are saved in Christ, and many of those promises may very appropriately be identified as part of the good news of Christianity, the gospel of Christ. But it's crucial that we understand right from the outset that those grand promises depend on and flow from this, the heart and fountainhead of the Christian good news. Those promises come only to those who are forgiven of sin through faith in the crucified and risen Christ. That is why Paul, when he presents the heart of the gospel, he starts here with these four crucial truths. God, man, Christ, and response. Again, it's important for us to know this so well that we can easily identify a distorted gospel when it comes our way. If we know the original, a fake is easy to spot. So these questions, though, and as we we look at the summary of God, man, Christ in response, this is throughout all the New Testament, by the way. Let me give you some examples. And and, and in some of these examples of Scripture, these four elements are, are expressly stated or written into the text. In others, not all of the elements are there, but they're at least implied. So John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. In this passage, we see God, man, Christ, and response. Acts chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Now we see God, we see Christ, we see the response. It's implied here that man's got a problem, right? Because we have a need for a savior. We have a need for repentance. Acts chapter 10, verses 39 through 43. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. God raised him on the third day. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. God, man, Christ, response. Again, another example are all all of chapters one through four of the book of Romans. And, And again, that's where this foundation was identified of God, man, Christ, response. You see that throughout those first four chapters again of the book of Romans. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. 
For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, lest we think that this is just isolated in the New Testament, we also see this in the Old Testament as well. I just read from Acts chapter 10, verse 43, which states, To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. To him, all the prophets bear witness. The Old Testament, right? And one passage, Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 27, a little bit of context on this one is there, there, there are two of Jesus' disciples who are traveling from Jerusalem to Emmaus and they're walking along and they're talking with each other and up comes this person and what they don't know is, is that it's Jesus that comes up and joins them. And, and they're telling this guy all these things that have happened. This is after Jesus was crucified, after he was placed in a tomb and after he was resurrected. Because the ladies went to the tomb, other disciples went there, they found it empty, and they're trying to understand this. And they're telling, they're telling this person who joined him and said, well, you know, we thought this was the guy, and then he died, and then he was in the tomb, and then he wasn't in the tomb, and we thought he was the guy, and now we don't know, right? And that's where Jesus comes in. And he said, and, and they still don't know it's Jesus yet. But he says to them, and before I read this, this, this passage right here is one that transformed the Old Testament for me. Personally, when I... When, when I read, it's probably about three or four years ago now, but it literally transformed the way I read and the way I think about what I'm reading in the Old Testament because Jesus is in there, right? So he tells them this. He says, and he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. See, this, this gospel, this good news is woven into the whole of scripture. It's, it's Jesus Christ and him crucified is what's referred to as the meta narrative or the main theme of the entire Bible. It's not just the New Testament, it's in the Old Testament. God, man, Christ, response. So this is a great model, by the way, if, if you wanted to share the gospel with someone in less than a minute, this is a great framework to do that. Let me see if I can do it in under 60 seconds. So God, who created all things, and he created man in his own image, us, so that we could have a relationship with him for his honor and for his glory. He has existed for eternity past. He exists today and he exists eternity future. Us, man, we were created by God to have a relationship with him. But rather than desiring that relationship, we desired to follow our own desires and our own flesh and our own wants and needs. And so we severed that relationship with God, right? That's what we refer to as sin. We're turning away from God. We're missing the mark of what he wanted us to do. But God didn't leave us in that sinful condition. He sent his only son, Jesus Christ. And what did Jesus Christ do? He lived a life that we are incapable of living because of sin. And so, so living a sinless life, he fulfilled the law that's written in the Old Testament. And he also took the punishment for our sins on the cross. And what is our response to that? Mark chapter 1, verses 4 and 14 and 15 lay this out. Now, after John was arrested, again being John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, 
The time, and again, this is Jesus speaking this. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Again, this is why it's important for us to understand and to know what is the true revealed gospel. So like Paul was challenging the churches in Galatia, so he's challenging us today. If you know this, right? So if someone comes teaching you something contrary to what I preach to you, or someone comes teaching to you something contrary to what you believed, what you received, you can call it out. So once again in his book, What is the Gospel? Uh, I like how Greg Gilbert explains the, the concept of repentance and faith as two sides of the same coin. Because again, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the, kingdom of, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. So listen here how, how Greg Gilbert explains the connection between faith and repentance. Jesus' message to his listeners was, repent and believe in the gospel. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. If faith is turning to Jesus and relying on him for salvation, repentance is the flip side of that coin. It is turning away from sin, hating it, and resolving by God's strength to forsake it, even as we at the same time are turning away from sin. So Peter then told, or Peter told the onlooking crowd, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. Acts chapter 3, verse 19. And Paul tells everyone that they should repent and turn to God. Acts chapter 26, verse 20. Again, Greg Gilbert continues, if we understand repentance rightly, we'll see that the idea that you can accept Jesus as Savior but not as Lord is nonsense. For one thing, it doesn't do justice to what Scripture says about repentance and its connection with salvation. It's as Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted, excuse me, he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. To put one's faith in King Jesus is to renounce his enemies. So I mentioned earlier that this, this verb here that Paul uses, that they were deserting God. Again, that's to turn or to change your transfer your allegiance from one thing to another, right? So think about that in a negative light. They, they were deserting God. But think about repentance on a positive aspect, right? So the, the, the churches in Galatia were, were deserting God in a negative aspect. We're called to repent, right? To turn away from our sin and to turn towards God. So think about deserting as a negative and repentance as a positive for us. I, I also like the way how, so in, in the year 1884, William Arnott write the, writes this, trying to explain a little bit more about repentance. He says, the difference between an unconverted and a converted man is not that one sins and the other has none, but the one takes part with his cherished sins against a dreaded God, being the unconverted, and the converted then takes part with a reconciled God against his hated sins. So again, Paul's letters, letter here to the churches in Galatia is a warning. And, and I believe this is intent here is to prevent apostasy. Now, apostasy is when a professing believer turns away from God and goes back to living a life apart from God, right? I don't think they're there yet. And the reason I think that is because later in this letter, chapter 5, verse 10, Paul writes the following. Actually, let me go back to verse 7. He says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? 
This persuasion is not from him who calls you, again referring to God. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Verse 10, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and the Lord and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. See, Paul doesn't identify who these troublers were. He doesn't even even indicate that he knows. But what he's proclaiming here is you gotta know the real, true, revealed gospel. God, man, Christ, response. So how will you respond to the gospel today? Do you know the true revealed gospel well enough to not be persuaded to desert God and to turn to a different gospel? Is this true revealed gospel an encouragement for you to rejoice in the salvation through faith alone and Christ alone? Or maybe you have, by God's grace through faith in Jesus, received the true revealed gospel, but now you're struggling with something that's tempting you to start that turn to desert God and to turn away to a different gospel. Maybe you've never heard the gospel before. Again, Mark 1.15, if you've never heard the gospel, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Romans 1, that's my timer to tell me. that I'm not taking a phone call. That's my timer to tell me I'm getting ready to stop here. So, Because the clock's not working, by the way. Oh, look at that. Okay. Put that underneath there. So Romans 1.16 tells us, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So where are you at with the gospel today? Can you rejoice in it? Are you turning from it? Have you ever heard it before? The time to respond is now, in one way or another. Rejoice in the salvation through faith alone in Christ alone or come to faith in Christ today. Please join me in prayer. Actually, before we pray, sorry. We're gonna have communion here in just a few minutes. And those, those questions that I just asked you, I asked you to think about those questions. In, in some capacity, every one of us falls into one of those questions, right? Think about where you're at. Use this time. The whole purpose of communion is to do what? Remember what Jesus did for us, right? What he did on the cross for us. The bread is, the, the bread is representative of his body broken for us. The juice is representative of his blood that was spilled for us. And we are commanded to do this in remembrance of him, in remembrance of the gospel until he returns, Okay? Now join me in prayer. God, thank you for your word. And as as we think about this letter that Paul wrote hundreds of years ago, God, it's an encouragement to us. These false gospels that continue to pop up, they're gonna continue. God, I pray that you will help us as a church corporately and individually as believers in Jesus Christ, that we will come back to on a regular basis your word and your gospel. God, give us faith to remain strong. Give us the wisdom to discern against those who would teach us that anything added to the gospel is a distorted gospel. That's what the churches here in Galatia, that's what they were being taught to do as well as Jesus Christ and something else. But God, we know that that's false. We know that it's wrong. 
Give us boldness. Give us wisdom. And God, I pray for any here today that maybe have never placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that today would be the day of their salvation. God, that the power, your power, that's evident through the gospel would be used today for your honor and for your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.